Welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know. <laughs> this is a podcast about uh, books, mm-hmm. philosophy, mm-hmm. whatever. Who cares? I'm Hi. here with two people. Graham Donaldson. Hey, hey there, buddy. How's it going? And uh, Thomas. Hi. He doesn't work here anymore. It makes me sad. Sorry. And this is uh, we talk about books and stuff. Whatever. You seem a little down in the dumps. Yeah. Can I tell you something that I think might turn it around? Sure. What if we did an episode on happiness? Oh. I'll just highlight my sadness. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow that. Wow. Man, it is, this feels so unnatural yeah, for me. Yeah. I am, I am okay, maybe the living up. opposite of Eeyore. Yeah. So You're a seven. Yeah, I'm a seven. A happy, yeah, happy one. I mean, Enneagram, not out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> maybe a little bit of both. <laughs> Uh, you know, I'd be happy just slotting right <laughs> in there at seven. We if learned, you were a 10 in Helen of Troy, you'd be miserable. That's the thing yeah. is when you're a 10, you can never trust anybody. That's right. Right. You live in, uh, there's a 30 Rock episode about that. What do they call it? The hot bubble? Hot bubble. Yeah. Where everyone like, you don't know how normal people live because you're so attractive. Yeah. I can never trust anybody. It's true. I like being a seven. That's right where I, right where I live. Cool. On that note. On that note. Uh, yeah. So we are talking about <laughs> happiness. Um... Uh, and so let's see, how do we start this off? So Arthur Brooks is a American, I mean, he writes, he write, I found out about him because he writes a column for the Atlantic. He like plays French horn. Hmm. Um, he uh, is, uh, he's at Harvard. Uh, I think he's teaching there. Um, but American social scientist, musician, and columnist for the Atlantic. There you go. During <laughs> how can you can you be at Harvard and not teaching there? Just sure. oh yeah, he just you can go to the, campus. You can walk around. Yeah, anyone can. Oh yeah, you can but I walk. mean, can you be like installed at Harvard as just sort of a fixture that lives in a cabin? Is that like a thing that they do? I don't, I don't know. Maybe like maybe artists in residence. Yeah, there's got to sure be resident like resident thinkers. Yeah, yeah. There's got to be. Anyway, at the beginning of um, COVID, he started writing an article, a column in the Atlantic, based on human happiness. Um, and he's been involved in Harvard and the Harvard's got this really long standing study on happiness and they've got this real long, I think it started in the thirties where they were tracking graduates and it's this long standing study trying to really figure out like what, what are the factors that cause, have people self-report as being happy, being content? What is a content settled life? Like how do you get it? And so there's this been this long standing study at Harvard, Arthur Brooks, he's involved with it, uh, now started writing this column uh, for The Atlantic during COVID. And one of them, he outlined um, sort of these three equations for happiness that he says takes into account a lot of the, um, the research and, uh, on happiness, and he's kind of put them into these little three equations. Um, I uh, like them. I think they're really interesting. And I've, I realized that you can kind of port them as a tool to help you with your reading of literature. So that's sort of, that's what I do at Veritas. I'm a literature teacher. And so um, I realized that this is a, uh, a really sort of a little helpful heuristic that you can do to talk about the characters in stories to really, yeah, use it to pinpoint uh, ways that you can um, use literature to speak to our own lives. Because ultimately... Um, uh, education, scole, school, is about the good life. And the good life is, you know, Aristotle says, you know, the good life is when man is happy. Now, what, what he means by that is not like he's got all his whims uh, met, but that we have, we are sort of reaching our telos. We are doing the thing that human beings are made for. 
And much to AJ's chagrin, Aristotle says that what that is is like doing philosophy. The philosopher says that the happy man is the philosopher. Shocker. <laughs> I think that's politics too. So yeah. There are a few answers. But, but this idea being that happiness is that thing that we want, that human beings want to be happy. And um, the, these sort of little equations are these things that have a lot of research into them to talk about happiness. Now, I'm going to talk about them. We can uh, agree or disagree with them. Um, but uh, I think that ultimately for my purposes and for the purposes for this podcast, I, I, I present them as helpful heuristics that you can take into books when you're reading them and to use as sort of like the basis of asking questions from the story to talk to yourself. For example, like, is Hamlet ultimately happy, right? You know, th these kinds of things. And then it, you can um, use it to sort of uh, get into a deeper understanding of that rhetoric level of, of literature. Does that make sense? So in this column, he presents three signs of happiness or three things that lead to happiness? He basically says if, yeah, if things, you have these things, if you, um, yeah, if, if you organize your life in this way, um, you are giving yourself the best chance for being happy. Okay. Yeah. I, I think helps, that's, so sign me up. Yeah. Yeah. So the, um, the first equation that he says is that happiness, um, uh, or subjective well-being, the, 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 the uh, is uh, genes, so your genetic makeup, plus your circumstances, the things that happen to you, plus your habits. Um, so these three things taken together uh, are, um, uh, are major contributors to human happiness. Now, first of all, your genetic makeup uh, is kind of a bummer to think about. Uh, even according to Brooks, uh, he says that when, when they take a look at the research, genetic makeup actually makes, is like a, a really big amount of, of human happiness. I don't know how they quantify it, but he makes the claim that like almost half of uh, um, the, the um, self-reporting about happiness does come down to your genetic makeup. I don't know the details specifically here. It's usually through twin studies. So you'll have... Oh, interesting. So you want twins. So the groups you want are twins that live together, mm -hmm. which will have shared genes and shared environment, twins raised apart, same genes, different environment. Mm -hmm. And then you, 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 you can, can do those, those comparisons. Uh, how much of it is, you know, two people living in completely different environments still grow up and they both make the same amount of money, mm -hmm. right? So then you'd point to a genetic component. But that's typically how you separate that stuff. Yeah, oh, interesting. That's cool. So, smart. People are smart sometimes. Yeah. Now, even though that genetics has a, takes a big section of, you know, can be a big drag or a big boon to human happiness, my guess is that, you know, since we all kind of fall on the, the bell curve of genetics, um, for a lot of people, it's not the major, it's like, a, like not a major thing, right? Like if you're on the wings of genetics, if you have like really great genetics, I don't know, you're like super attractive or something, the hot bubble. Yeah, if you're, if you're Helen, your yeah. life might be miserable. Your life may be miserable, um, uh, and that may be a major contributing factor to your, to your happiness. Or well, if for, you, Yeah, for example, like the hot girls in my high school never got asked out because all the good guys were intimidated. So they always had to date the jerkiest fellas, the only ones go. that had the confidence to talk to or them. They, yeah. Or, there you go. I never even thought about that. Like, yeah, none of the good guys ever asked them out because they were always really like, oh, I could never get her. She's too cute. Mm. And then the guys that would get him were like, let's go do drugs. Yeah. Like, yeah. And then those girls think that only the best boys are the worst. Yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. But it's a true thing. There you go. Yeah. And then presumably we can also think of examples on the other end of genetics where if you were in chronic pain, you know, if you had some sort of disease where you were always hurting, that is going to be a major drag on happiness. On happiness. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but 
Um, uh, but for, you know, with the bell curve idea of, of that we're not super, we, we, we don't have like sort of, you know, I don't know, happiness drugs coursing through our bodies at all time, or if we're not in chronic pain, chances are we fall into some sort of range that uh, uh, does have a, a factor, but is not like this determining factor. And I also happen to think that like there is a lot of, um, you know, sort of human willpower that can overcome circumstances and genetic uh, makeups and these kinds of things. Um, the, so then the, the second characteristic in this is circumstances. Um, and this is, Thomas, what you're talking about, with like people who have similar or identical genetic makeups being in completely different mm-hmm. circumstances. So this, you know, uh, it can be a boon or it can be a drag, the kind of home that you grew up in, uh, the kind of education that you had, your childhood, the, the accidents that befall you, the, the good opportunities that you're presented. Um, uh, you just so happened to meet somebody who said, you know what, you'd be a great fit at my company. And all of a sudden you get this opportunity that you never would have had before, right? Like the, the accidents and circumstances of life, they can be major uh, benefits and they can be uh, major detriments. But um, what uh, they pointed out in uh, a lot of the studies is that human beings also have a pretty good ability to get used to circumstances. And if they, at the beginning, um, have, you know, a big uptick or downtick on happiness, you know, eventually sort of you get used to your circumstances and they're not as powerful. So the ultimate example or the, 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 the classic example is you get like a big raise at work. You get twenty percent raise, and you come home, and you're like, your happiness has a massive uptick. Everything is improved. You think life is great, and then six months into it, uh, um, your circumstances have improved, but maybe your happiness has not sort of tracked with that, or you're you've now just sort of like squandered it, or whatever. Or you have saved it, and you were prudent with it, but, the, but it doesn't change your the, quality of living. The, yeah, it, like. The number in your bank account's higher, but mm-hmm. you're still living the same. Yeah, way. or you, and there are these other factors in your life that you haven't taken into account. So they're like, you know, your uh, your dog still hates you or whatever, uh, and that would <laughs> Rufus. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, so those first two ones, genes and circumstance, those are completely uh, outside of human control. Um, um, but human beings, we still need to be aware of these things, and we need to. Uh, uh, we still have the power to sort of you know, have some measure of control over how we're going to deal with it. Um, Maybe and I were talking uh, before this episode, uh, uh, there was um, Josh Gibbs who does the podcast, The Proverbial, is it The Proverbial? Just, just Proverbial. proverbial. Um, he was talking uh, about the proverb, God doesn't give with both hands, which is a proverb that generally means if God gives you a gift in one way, um, it's not going, he, God doesn't give like only good things to some people and only bad things to other people. There's always going to be a give and a take with the skills and the gifts that you have. Is that is a good summation? Yeah, sure. Weed heavens. That's bleak. No, 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 no. It's no. your example of the people who are attractive in high school. It's like, yeah, they're attractive, but they'll have some other problem. That's, yes. how, that's how I think of the it. The happiness is, the, the, the attractiveness is also going to have a, there are uh, a headwind to it, to it yes. as well. There's downsides to things. Yeah. Or upsides the down things. Yes. Reminds yes. me of that story yes. where the exactly. man broke his leg and he thought it was so terrible until it saved him from the draft, sure. which he thought was great until his and son he, got drafted. And then he, he fell in love with the nurse or something. Yeah, like that. yeah. Like totally. there, it's this. You know, there's there's good and bad. That's sure. right. So the idea being, yes, that life gives you a hand, and it all it's in how you play that hand. Right. It has nothing. It has less. You can complain about the hand, but 
Uh, um, it's all in how you play it. And the bad can be good, and the good can be bad, depending on two how seven you... Two-seven offsuit's great if the flop is seven-seven-two. Exactly. That's what I always say. <laughs> That's what I always say. Um, <laughs> and so in that, in, in that proverbial podcast, like, his ultimate point is he's saying, like, listen, you, you've got to... You've got to go with the things that you have some kind of natural disposition towards. If you're super tall, don't be an airline stewardess, right? Like it's just going to be miserable. That that was maybe that's that's a good example. You can help people put their bags up, but anyway, Um, (laughs) that's very true. But there's a reach over the seats. mm -hmm. You know, being tall is being tall is helpful. But you know, you're going to be hunchy all day if you're on that airplane. Right. Um, But his so his point was. A big part of growing up is the, is the self-awareness that you have to be able to say, what is this one thing that I have that I can leverage into having some kind of success in this world? Um, he tells the charming story of, of auditing uh, um, a college-level class when he was 17 on creative writing and the professor saying, the only person who's not terrible was this story. He was like, oh, my word, I can do this. Mm. Right? And I think that's true. That... that um, that when it comes to our, you know, you need to leverage the circumstances. You need to sort of know your genetics or your nature, your things that you're predisposed to, and you need to be clever in how you utilize that thing. Um, if you've got, don't be a baseball player if you like have really bad depth awareness, right? Like you'll never be able to catch the grounder. Sure. But then, but then the big one also on this was habits, and this takes us to the second. Um, um, this is the second equation. I'm just going to say all three equations, and we can come back, and I can talk a little bit about how we how we can use this in analyzing literature. Um, so habits, he says, the second equation for habits is um, uh, you cultivating uh, faith, family, friends, and work. These are the four things that he says. Is that uh, the, the people who are the happiest all have a combination of these things, these four things. Faith, family, friends, and work. And many times, family and friends can kind of be seen as like a, uh, a core category. They, can, they very much go together. People you love that love you. Yes. Yeah. Um, there is a really wonderful talk that uh, Senator Ben Sass, uh, he is a senator from Nebraska. Um, he is on the Senate Judiciary Committee. He is a friend of classical education. And he gave a really great talk um, I think, I think he quoted it, Josh Gibbs in one of his books. Yeah, yes. Yeah, he was he was on the back of uh, he he was one of the uh, what are those called? Endorsements? No. Well, he, qu- he quotes them in one of the books. Oh, he he yeah, does. He quotes Gibbs in one of his yeah, books. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Um and then also he gave a talk at I think the 2018 uh, Gospel Coalition uh conference. Um and he's I think it was the 2018. Right. But he, he I, and he talked on he talked on this topic, these four things. Um uh, faith, family, friends and work. Uh, and he was talking about like um, sort of modern life uh, has in many ways uh, really rocked the foundation for these four things. Um, less so faith, I mean, uh, but family, friend, meaningful relationships and meaningful work have, have, have had a hard time sort of in the modern world. That's his thesis. You can go watch that talk. It's very interesting. But uh, the way that this uh, – yeah, so these four things, when they – looked at the research for faith, it needed to have a couple of characteristics. One, it needed to have a framework for death. And it needed to have some kind of framework for meaning in life and meaning after death. Um, The research was pretty agnostic. 
according to Brooks. Uh, this could be a framework for, of a reincarnation. This could be a framework from a Hindu tradition. This could be a framework of you slip into the great nothingness of Buddhism. This could be the Christian framework of that life after death is um, a, a relationship with God, either in the positive or the negative. Um, uh, but there needed to be some sort of framework. If people did not have some kind of framework for life after death that um, that they were, I, I presume, comfortable with, that ended up being like a, a drag on happiness. Mm-hmm. That if you didn't have this, um, that uh, uh, even if, if all the other things were going to be aligned and this was that open thing, then that was going to have sort of a, I, I call it a headwind. That was going to have a bit of a drag on happiness. If, if a character or a person does not have a satisfying framework um, for death, then um, it's going to really, uh, you know, um, um, sort of fracture a lot of the things that you do in life. Because why do it? Why work towards something? Um, so Hamlet, the deep philosophy uh, matters, even if you're not thinking about it all day. Yes, the deep. So uh, the deep philosophy matters, and even if you just have it. Uh, um, you're not a, you know, you're not a contemplative person. You're not a deep thinker, but you have it. And you're like, yep, that sounds right to me. This is the thing. I'm cool with it. And, um, I've got that framework and then you can kind of move on to other things. Right. I often think about, um, the character at the beginning of, um, oh, what's it called? Of, of the, of the Republic when he's like, Hey, what's justice? And, uh, the character at the beginning of the Republic, he's like, justice is... Uh, the, the the old rich man. Do you remember Even what his answer what is? Deserve? The one who goes to bed, like at the beginning. The one that goes to bed at the beginning. Doesn't he say, "I I think just like it is better to look just than." Oh no no, no that's different. That's, not him. that's the other guy. That's yeah, the guy no, that's the, kind of a charlatan. The, the guy at the beginning has a. He just sort of quickly yeah, goes to bed, answer, yeah. but he's got a very simple answer. He's yeah. like, "I'll look it up." Give justice is just. He essentially says something like, "Well, it's just being good to other people and doing the right thing." Yeah. He kind of gives like this answer. And when Socrates presses him on how do you know that, he's like, I don't know, I'm going to bed. I love that character because I I think that that, you know. He gets he, it right. He, get, he gets it right, but he's also like, I'm not going to overthink this thing. I've got, I've got this framework that works. Now, he's talking about justice, but it is a moral framework. And I, even, I think this is also what they're kind of getting at with this. It doesn't mean that you need to be a theologian. It doesn't mean that you need to have this like deep apologia for faith. It means that the the research show that the people who were settled and content, uh, uh, by and large, one of the boxes that was ticked was they had a satisfying answer to death. Um, so that was the, um, that was the first one. Um, the other one was relationships, family and friends. Um, and the relationship with family and friends needed to be one where people, uh, loved you and you loved them for more than what they could just get out of you or you get out of them. Uh, the, the, the ultimate sort of litmus test for this was they were happy when you were happy. They were happy at your good fortune and they were sad at your misfortune, even if it didn't mean anything for them. That's kind of the litmus test for happiness, um, according to uh, sort of how uh, Brooks and the research was framing it. Maybe we did an episode on, you did an episode on Aristotle's friendship yeah. a long time ago. Um, yeah, long time do ago. you remember, uh, um, 
the highest form of friendship that Aristotle talked about? Friendship of excellence, arete. What was the hallmarks of the friendships of excellence? That your happiness, so the, the, there's a friendship of utility and a friendship of pleasure. Friendship of utility, you enjoy what you get from the other person. It's like networking. Mm-hmm. Friendship of pleasure is you have an activity you enjoy. You both hang glide and you love hang gliding together. Friendship of pleasure is, or I'm sorry, friendship of excellence is that your happiness is the happiness of the other person. When the other person is happy, you are happy. Yeah, and I think this is, so Aristotle, you know, uh, is describing what, you know, they, they were also sort of finding in their research, that this um, level of happiness is a necessary component in, in the people who are happy. Now, I'm sure that someone who had a framework for, you know, if someone had all these things, but they were missing a category, mm-hmm. it's not going to be that they're like ultimately miserable. They were just showing that normatively speaking, these were the categories that had um, readings in someone's life because, and, and when they weren't present, um, you know, the reports of either self-reporting or whatever metric they used to talk about happiness and contentedness uh, was a lot lower. So take that for what it's worth. But um, it's one of those findings over time, too, of the decreasing number of close friendships. I don't yes. know if he goes into that. No. So um, he, I, yeah, he didn't go into it. I, I've only been a, a casual reader of his article. Um, but it did remind me of um, some findings. I think it was uh, – I remember reading it was quite a while ago. But uh, there are some studies about how men, yeah, as men. they get older, are increasingly – having less and less friends. And the way that, uh, that um, um, a lot of men think that they've got really great friends when they're 19, being like, these are my brothers. We die for each other. But really, you just, like, drink. Right. You, like, drink and do stupid stuff. Right. And then when one of your buddies gets cancer or his wife dies or leaves him and you got this, like, crisis, all of a sudden, like, doing stupid stuff and drinking doesn't really work anymore right i'm sure there's like a new jackass movie coming out with like and the guys are like in their late 50s that's what's weird is i mean they're old right? but i'm sure but i'm sure well they're getting lots of money to do it sure. i'm sure that they're gonna try to work in some kind of like we're true friends right. because we've done this like we've let crocodiles bite our 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 ears for 20 years or whatever right. but that's like the example of not actual authentic friendship sure um, they might actually be friends, though. They've got other stuff going on. Yeah, maybe they, in, in their defense, okay. like a lot of them have dealt with serious addiction and things like that, and they're still together. Fair point. So no, you, that is a fair point. Sometimes it has so bad far, influences on the each other. Sure. Each other, Insofar but. as like there has been that actually feeling bad for the per, you know, but it's uh, outside of the it's outside of the like jackassery. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, well, that's the name of the thing. Um, Both ways, right? Uh, yeah. Not, apologies. Not just the name of it. Yeah. No. Um, and then this is true for family as well. Now, family is kind of a built-in uh, relationship uh, uh, where this is, um, uh, you're sort of stuck with your family. Um, people who have your same, where you all, you all came from the same place. You uh, grew up together with your siblings. You've come from the, the home of these families. That creates an environment of understanding that is very different than, than your friends. Um, um, the re- he was saying that with this research, there also needs to be a element of responsibility. So your people are depending on you. So family and friends really only works, and you can really only get to that Aristotelian level of friendship of excellence when the possibility of the friendship like failing because of your inactivity, right? Like you need to have skin in the game. They need to have skin in the game for your friendship. This isn't just like 
your drinking buddies and you're going camping and you're going to get, you're going to do like fun stuff and hiking and fishing and drinking. And then when, if, if, you know, Bill doesn't come, well, that's okay. No, this is the kind of friendship that if Bill doesn't come, it's a problem. Sure. Um, Aristotle even talks about you know, those categories can change that someone you think is excellent actually turns out to be pleasure. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And then you can just change how you treat that person based on that. Um, yeah. So we, so if you are, you know, sort of doing a self-report for yourself and you're thinking, do I have that level of friendship or not? I mean, uh, that, that's a fruitful exercise for an individual person to go through. Um, it's also a fruitful exercise to be able to sort of apply this heuristic to characters and stories, right? Like, we are beginning the school year pretty soon here, and when we begin the school year, Hanenberg and I are going to be teaching uh, crime and punishment. You know, and so the, char- the main character of Raskolnikov, here is a character that... Um, uh, when it comes to friendship, does not have one. In fact, actively fights against having friendships. Yet, it is the stubborn love of somebody who, for some reason, um, uh, holds Raskolnikov as somebody that he needs to take care of. That is a that character's name is Razumikin. That 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 stubborn friendship that Razumikin has, that loyalty, where Raskolnikov's illness and sadness makes Razumikin sad ultimately is a major contributing factor to some good in Raskolnikov's life. Would you say that's fair, Hanenberg? Yeah, and Mary's a sister. And Mary's a sister. No, that's, that's a factor, too. Razumikin, you know, like, like Raskolnikov. Oh, he's sister. literally the best character in the book. Yes, he's Razumikin liter- is the best. Razumikin's great. But um, the point being that, um, that that sort of lo- loyalty of friendship, um, uh, even though Raskolnikov wants to hate it and wants to be miserable and wants Razumikin to go away, um, it ultimately has the effect of being a contributor to Raskolnikov's ultimate eventual contentment. Convalescence. Yeah, yeah. and his and his, exactly and his convalescence, his healing. So there's a you know there's an example of, of using that with a character. Um, Hamlet and Horatio don't really have that friendship. Right. Um, Horatio really is the only person that Hamlet can really unburden himself to. But it, it is not that. Um, that sort of I'm sad when you're sad relationship. At the beginning of the play, Hamlet's like, oh, you're Horatio, right? I know you. We kind of go to college together. And Horatio's like, yeah, and I'm from Denmark too. Um, But they don't have this strong friendship. And the strong friendship that Hamlet is supposed to have with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern ultimately gets destroyed when Hamlet suspects that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are treating him like a friendship of, what was the first one? Utility. Utility. That they're just being his friends so that they can get into the good graces of the king. And once Hamlet sort of suspects that that's the case, it's unclear whether that is the case with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. I actually feel like they actually do care for Hamlet. But yeah, it seems like they're trying hard. It does seem like they're trying hard. But the fact that Hamlet suspects some of it, he ends up then sort of poisoning the well of that friendship because he is not going to reciprocate. He is not going to have skin in the game. In fact, what he is going to do is he is going to skin <laughs> Rosencrantz and Guildenstern right. at yes. the end of the book. Right. Quite almost literally. The, he he, he, he them marches off. them off to their death. Right. Yep. So, um, you know, you can take that, you know, the, this, I, this Aristotelian notion of friendship, know that it is a major contributing factor to human happiness, Put, ask those questions of Hamlet and say, does Hamlet have any true friends of excellence? And as you go through all the characters, like, no, he doesn't. Uh, anyway, just an example of how you... So you're proposing these as ways of reading literature, of looking for whether characters have these different... I'm supposing that insofar as we take these as being 
accurate descriptors of human nature, mm-hmm. that, that they are insightful in talking about something that is true about human beings, that they can be helpful interpretive tools for talking about stories insofar as those stories are also accurate descriptions of human nature. Um, do you find that this is an accurate model? I think so. I think it's helpful. I, I do. Um, um, there's, I, there are, I'm sure you get to those interesting cases like a, um, a father Zosima and brothers Karamazov. You get to somebody that like removes himself from society, um, a bit, you know, and doesn't seem to have, they have the faith, but doesn't seem to have the friends, doesn't seem to have the other category, which is work. Um, maybe there's the work of being a monk, but you know, the, the, then it's interesting to apply it to those different kinds of cases and be like, well, here's somebody that seems to buck the trend or here's somebody that is talking about like deep human, um, contentment and has removed a lot of things from his life. Not fringe, sort of the fringe thir- class. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that's also the third equation. We'll get there in a second. Okay. Uh, the other, um, category, the other last one. So it was faith, family, friends, and the other one is meaningful work, work. Um, uh, that human beings were made to work. Um, this, uh, these categories of, of a, a framework for death um, and a framework for sort of moral living, um, family and friends, real authentic relationships of people who really truly love you and are dependent on you and count on you, and meaningful work are all things that God gives to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, obviously, the relationship with God, knowing, uh, uh, and also a framework, do not do this thing, is a necessary component. Um, the family, the, the authentic, loving relationship between Adam and Eve, and then the meaningful work. You get a untended garden, and you are to turn it into a garden. So, like, you know, th- there's the, um, the, the human happiness displayed in sort of the ancient story founding story of human beings. The categories for meaningful work are, are um, two of twofold. One, you need to be earning success or at least feel like you're earning success. You are not just succeeding uh, um, by randomness or by failure. Like there needs to be the progress that you are doing the thing, that your work is actually benefiting and bringing about success. And then that work needs to be meaningful for other people. You need to be able to have a defense as to why this work needs to exist or should exist in the world. Mm-hmm. So the, the sort of the case study that I came up with or the, the little thought experiment that I came up with was imagine you came into work every day and your job was to push a button. And when you push that button, you got some sort of random distributed payoff, either in the positive or the negative. You made 100 bucks or you lost 50 bucks. And every time you push the button, you had this random payoff. And the algorithm was created in such a way that at the end of the year, you had a salary of $60,000 every year. Didn't matter how many times you pushed that button, in what order you pushed it once one day, you pushed it 100 times one day. At the end of the year, you had 60 grand. That would be an example of not meaningful work. You are not earning your success and it has no meaning. It's It's just this random distributed payoff. That is going to be a drag on happiness. It's not going to make you like, you know, super miserable that you don't want to exist anymore. You'd, ha- you'd have to find work someplace else. Exactly. Like if you figured that you, out, I would just go and impress it once a year and then do something else with exactly. my time. Exactly. As soon right? as you did that, your natural human instinct would be to seek out that thing that you're not getting. Which from, is some something meaningful to do with my time. Exactly. Um, 
And, and you know, you see this play itself out, that, that people will give an exorbitant amount of time to work that has that kind of meaningful progression and, and, and getting better at something. People Maybe, does, do play an instrument. Does he talk about learned helplessness at all? Is this something? No, what's that? It's a... Uh, the research basis for it is um, they, it, it's a horrible study, so I apologize in advance, but they take these dogs and they put them in a box, not like a big box. It's, you know, like a crate, uh, mm-hmm. whatever. And inside of that crate, they, um, there's a button. When you press the button in some, they press it, they get food every time In some, they press it and they get shocked every time. And in Oof. some it's random. So some it's, you get food or you get a shock. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ones who get food, they press it a lot and they keep getting food. The ones who get shocked stop immediately. And the ones who get a random result give up they just lay down and they quit the game because not knowing what is going to come from what they're doing is they can't like deal with that as mm. an outcome. Um, and they have to be like rehabilitated to be like healthy dogs again. It, like it really messes with these poor creatures. Um, but that's, uh, uh, that's the comparison to what you're talking about. This is, um, anyway, there's empirical backing to what you're saying that people yeah. just give up in the face of that meaninglessness and the uncertainty of a positive or negative payoff. That's right. If you, yeah, if you, yeah, if you, if your your time spent is going to have this random, you don't know what you're going to get. You don't know from what it, you're going to get. You just give up. Then then it is not a game worth playing, and yep. you give it and you give it up. Yep. So there, the, the meaningful work um, um, now it's not really tied to a number amount. Num- we'll talk about money in the last equation, but um, uh, there there needs to be the person needs to be able to have some kind of defense as to why their job is a necessary thing. Um, and so you think of the fame, you know, Office Space, mm-hmm. the movie Office Space, right? There's the main character who hates his job and he thinks his job has, has sort of like no meaning in the grand scheme of things and that's why he hates it. And then the Jennifer Aniston character feels the same way about her job as a server at this like Applebee's or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's been a long time since I've watched that movie, right? But there was like a whole um, genre of cubicle hating culture that was built in the, that sort of came of age in the 90s, right? Because that was sort of a time in, when we were, when, you know, the corporate structure was sort of turned into that way. It was before the Google campus where you had ping pong tables and bunk beds and things. You, it was a sterile environment for business. Yeah, and then even that's going to have some kind of shelf life where right. people will realize like, oh gosh, this this actually, it's you can't a lie. just... I, you can't put your life into the corporation. That, or you can't just like... Uh, uh, smooth over some sort of sense of meaninglessness with like vending machines. Like the the work itself needs to you need to be able to uh, have a um, uh, an, an, an ability to sort of put it into the framework of meaning sure. and feeling like you're earning your success. So those are the, and and those we have control over. Um, our faith, our family, our friends, our work. Those are things that we can put effort into to make better. So um, for the person who feels that they have no friends. Um, uh, um, putting yourself out there and actually having skin in the game, and uh, you know that is a hard thing to rehab, especially uh, as time goes on. Um, but you know, the, the lone wolfing it is going to be a drag on on sort of human happiness, human flourishing, that kind of thing. God says it is not good for man to be alone, right? That kind of thing. Sure. Um, and then the last one, this third equ- equation. Is that and then this is dealing. Can you review the, what we've got yeah. so far? In so the, the first equation equations? was, you know, the the, the the well-being was a mixture of genes, circumstance, and habits. Okay, so well-being equals genes, circumstance, habits. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then the habits was faith, family, friends, and work. Okay, so elements of habits, faith, family, friends, work. Okay, and then this last one has to do with desires and has to do with appetites. Okay, and uh, and a. Um, 
it is a the what you have divided by what you want, and having that number be um, as big as possible. Now, the way that you can do this is you can either increase the numerator, what you have, or you can decrease the denominator, what you want. Um, so I assume a perfect value is one. If I have everything I want, I'm satisfied with it. It's, I guess. I, it's a one. Yeah. If I have, if you had twice as much as you wanted, that's. I mean, that but that's what I mean. Like I can have more, like a a normal. So you're getting like into debate. Happy, you're getting into the debate value. I want to have. You're getting into the debate I want to have. So just just hold your horses, because this is I think actually. Um, Thomas and I, or Thomas and AJ and I, we had a disagreement over ambition during my Satan episode. Remember that? <laughs> yes, I do. And I think that the disagreement was I, we were talking about different categories. I, I know you mean the podcast episode, but I'm preferring to think that like... The Satan episode? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> like you Graham, were possessed? Graham had a yeah. like satanic episode. No, no, yeah. no. <laughs> the, the Satan podcast episode. And I think we were talking about different There's categories. There's a Satan podcast? <laughs> exactly. Probably that seems like a scary podcast. Yeah, exactly. I wouldn't go there. Yeah, no, thank you. Um... It's just about some guy talking about how great he is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, and I think we were talking past each other. So let me just outline this equation. We can, we can get back to that conversation. So, um, uh, <laughs> have you heard of the, um, the hedonic treadmill? Have you ever heard that, that term before? Yeah. So the hedonic treadmill is you get things, you want things. Once you have things, the circumstance wears off and the mm-hmm. sugar rush or however you want to call it goes down and you want more and more things and more and more things and then you're on this treadmill. I got to make more money. Oh. I need a boat too. Can I rephrase it? Sure. So there's hedonic treadmill. That's, a, that's a very charitable way of saying it. You're wrong. <laughs> I, I didn't say that. <laughs> I, um, I, I like to reinterpret your sentences. <laughs> Imagine a scale from one to 10. Okay. And uh, let's take AJ. AJ is a very happy person. Yep. But he can't be a 10 all the time, so let's call him a 9. Okay. Let's call him an 8 for the sake of sure. this example. Being I thought it was here. a 7, but yeah, you know yeah. what? Let's, go, let's do 7. Fine. Okay. So uh, AJ's average happiness level is 7. Graham's is 5. Thomas's is 3. I don't Whatever. Pick your number. Well, let's say, focused on AJ, um, AJ gets a raise. His mm-hmm. number goes up to 8, mm-hmm. but over time it's going to come back to 7. Mm-hmm. Well, let's say something bad happens to AJ. Someone punches him in the face. Mm-hmm. He goes down to a 6. Mm-hmm. He's going to go back to 7 pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. That's the hedonic treadmill. Oh, I see. Is that you have a happiness set point. And you'll fluctuate around that set point, but you'll end up back at that. It's, incre- it's incredibly difficult to change your set point to an eight. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, it's hard. It, it's you know, some would. Not, I was going to say it's easier to go down than it is to go up. Sure. So, like uh, something like um, if you're if you get divorced, you're going to have a permanent decrease to your hedonic um, uh, your, your uh, happiness set point. Yeah, it depends. Uh, no, it's the most traumatic <laughs> events are holidays and oh, okay. divorces and things like, um, Fair uh, point. holidays. Yeah. Holidays count as things that are, um, anyway, they're just stressful family situations. Mm. So anyway, it's, it's easier to go down this happiness set point than it is to go up this happiness set yeah. point, but almost everything you'll end up back at, you know, seven if, gotcha. in AJ's Okay. Case. So that's the, the treadmill is that no matter, uh, what happens to you, you kind of end up at the same. Happiness. Can you change your base score? Can you go from, can you become Everything a base you eight? Laid as a base out the beginning is the, okay, gotcha. that's how you change it. It's, um, your genes are a part of it. Mm-hmm. Your environment's a part of it. Then, in theory, habit, habits can, yeah. um, you know, a radical weight loss for someone who's obese will yeah. tend to, um, you know, increase your happiness, things cool. like that. But it, it's hard. It's really hard. Yes. Now with this one, this is, uh, uh a bit of a mind set shift. So with what you have with, uh, divided by what you want, that's the equation. And lots of people spend their time increasing the what you have and, and, and thinking that that is going to be the thing that is ultimately fulfilling. If you have this thing, if I just had a boat, if I just had a bigger house, if I just had smarter kids, if I just had fancier skateboards, I don't know, um, then I would be happier. Now, the, one of the f- sort of the trouble with human appetites and the human life is that the growth weight of wants or the growth weight 
of of wants is like greater than the growth weight of or uh, of haves, right? Like as soon as you have something, your wants go up one point two percent. That just seems to be a thing that is baked into the human nature. It is probably a very beneficial thing that we have that baked into our nature. Um, if you're talking, if you're a fan of evolution, it would be because it allows us to get more resources, yep. stay, survive better, right? If I was happy with what I had, I'd have a less chance of surviving than someone who is always wanting more and can build a cache of resources. If a baby is just content over a uh, infant's uh, understanding of the world and getting food by crying, then language is never going to be right. the thing that they strive for. We yes. talked about this in our mimetic episode of yep. Rene Girard. Yes. So there is, a, there is a necessary component that you want to have this sort of growth and this improvement. But it can become uh, sort of like a weaponizer, it can become pathological when it, uh, it turns into thinking, you know, I want this thing, I want this thing, and then your, your appetites grow uh, by feeding it. Um, the other way to focus on it is to try to decrease, um, try to decrease the wants um, and say, do I really want this thing? Uh, this desire that I have is, can I curb it? Can I uh, really sort of analyze it and, and see if it's something that I really want? And this is probably, this little heuristic is, is what I was thinking about with, the char- with someone like a Father Zosima, where here is a character who is living this sort of simp- simple monastic life. Or the opposite of this is uh, Dorian Gray, who is somebody that says, I am going to completely enjoy and drive headlong into all the hedonic pleasures of life in order to find that contentment. And what it does to him over time is it it corrupts his soul, which is symbolized in the in the painting. He has a painting of his soul that he keeps hidden in his house. And when he goes and looks at it at the end of the book, he has bec- it has become a hideous monster because he has spent his life trying to chase after these 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 wants. Uh, to the detriment of everybody around him, and it, it is you know a drag to his happiness. It, it it brings him into ruin. So, I've hoped that as I do this, I'm sort of peppering in examples from stories right. to see how either you as a teacher or you as a reader uh, can use something like a Harvard study on that has research backed by it on happiness and say, okay, let's. Uh, let's bring this into uh, our discussion of Hamlet or Raskolnikov or Dorian Gray or Father Zosima or any of these kinds of characters. And I think, Thomas, that this is kind of where AJ and I and you were sort of at the the impasse on that uh, and that conversation because AJ and I were advocating for lowering the wants, if I'm remembering the conversation correctly. And you were advocating by saying, if you throw out the desire for betterment, you that is going to be a drag to happy to society. Like you can't have people that don't want don't want to improve things. That's and true, I think sure. and I think is that a fair? I don't think I said that. If I uh, I probably believe that um, it would create huge problems for there to be no want. Yes. Right? Yeah. Um, and we were saying, but it can cause such problems. And you were saying it can cause such problems if you completely throw it out. So I think right. that's kind of where uh, maybe our our. Um, are speaking past each other sure. came from because we were I was I, I knew I was coming at it from a curb your desires limit oh. your passions um, um, you know uh, the very fact that Romeo thinks Juliet will make him happy oh. and has this almost like devouring desire not for just for her sexually but it's because it's not really that it's a devouring desire to be loved sure. by this person uh, ends up being this corrosive destructive thing yes but 
you don't want to throw out love. I mean, as we talked about, you know, the family and friends and meaningful love is a necessary component to happiness. So how that gets deployed, you've get, you have Romeo sort of like devouring desire for that thing that's missing in his life. He wants that someone to be happy when he's happy and sad when he's sad. And, that's funny. Cause I, but on the other hand, he, he doesn't go about it prudently. Because yeah, if I'm, uh, again, I, if I'm taking it the wrong direction, just tell me. But at some level, you're saying it'd be better if there wasn't adolescent lust because it wouldn't lead to such excesses as the end of Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and that's probably like a true statement. Um, I just like, that doesn't seem like a feasible thing. And so instead it, this, I, I think of praise of folly a lot. The book AJ talked about Erasmus, like marriage happens because of folly. Yeah. Well, Romeo and Juliet's folly should lead to marriage. Mm-hmm. And then if Romeo's next step is I'm going to be the one, you know, he, his next folly is I'm going to, um, fix the conflict between the, the Capulets and the Montagues. It's an insane idea, but if you'd work toward it, like, it's a great folly. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, folly is what pushes us forward in some way. Yeah. So oftentimes when students are presented with a character like a Romeo, right. they think that the opposite is best. Well, sure. we should now be somebody right. who is detached. Right. Or we should be somebody that doesn't love um, or doesn't fall in love. Or we should right. be somebody that like, you know, like takes a slow. These are sort of, they'll give some sort of like, you know, Romeo's excess is, is his problem. And I think what you just described is, is, is what they say. Is, no, is better. No, no. Um, that it's not the opposite. We no. don't want a detached robot. Because there'll be some students be like, I told you, like being, um, like just being chill is like right. the best thing. But that's not necessarily the case because you could have the story of how being overly chill ends up being like uh, a drag on, on, on the happiness as well. Like Romeo should be doing things in the right, right. way. Sure. The great tragedy of Romeo and Juliet is how much of it is Romeo's fault? how much of it is his fate and just like the, uh, the fault of the circumstance sure. as opposed to the fault of the habits. Right. Um, and so that's the great sort of benefit that literature can bring is because you were reading stories of people who have circumstances that are out of their control, mm-hmm. who are trying to do the right thing or at least um, do, the, do what they think is the right move in the midst of those circumstances. They are trying to, you know, do the things that are in their control, their habits, their work, their loves, their, um, their sense of morality, right and wrong, and their framing of death. And then in the end, based on the outcome, is it the circumstance that screwed them? Is it their, um, their being, uh, what's the opposite of prudence? Imprudence. Imprudent. Them being. Folly. They're being, their folly, them being imprudent. Um, um, them chasing after the wrong kind of work, them going after the wrong kinds of loves, them ignoring uh, the, the questions of ultimate meaning. Is that what brings them down or is the circumstance? We don't really, in English class, talk about like the genetics of things. Right. I don't really know how you would. I guess you could if you were doing things like um, Richard III, where he has the hunchback and mm-hmm. is super ugly. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be a big contributing factor because everyone's like, oh, that guy's got to be bad. Right. He's ugly. It's a bummer. Yeah. Um, and he, he says that nature has made me this way, but then he spends most of the play pushing away people that could be good. And he's it's like, true. and women, women hate me because I look like this. But then he, he gets, gets a married. woman really quickly, even though he just killed her husband. Yeah. Like he, he claims a woman. So apparently they don't hate him. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. He just, he has sort it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy mm-hmm. where he says, everybody treats me so bad. Nature is all against me. And then he causes most of his own problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, so that's, I don't have much more to add to that, uh, but that's kind of the heuristic that you, the way that you can use something like a modern psychological study. Yeah. And for me, when I, you know, sort of read the conclusions and sort of tested them against how characters are acting in stories and, and thinking that like, yes, these things line up, that to me adds more of the weight of sort of, uh, of it being something that seems commonsensical than if someone said, you know, happiness really is all about how much chocolate you get or some stupid study, right? Mm -hmm. uh, or they just sort of take one thing and say, happiness can be completely 100% boiled down to- Genetics. Your genetics. Yeah. Or um, human beings, happiness is just dopamine and, and, the, uh, and cortisone or whatever, maybe not cortisone. Cortisone. The cortisol. Adrenaline? Yeah, adrenaline and, and dopamine flowing through your body. So if we could do that artificially, um, everybody would um, be happy. We, everybody would be happy. It's um, uh, this is you know the the central question of another book we read at this school, Brave New World, mm -hmm. which is like okay, imagine if you could sort of bypass the hard ways of happiness and you could just sort of have the payoff. Um, half the students say, yeah, you get the payoff, really? and other half students are like, but something's lost, but they can't quite put their finger on it. Yeah. Anyway, that's why. Yeah, so uh, that's the uh, my thoughts. That's using Arthur Brooks's happiness studies in English class. Okay, so well-being is habits. Genes, circumstance, and habits. Genes, circumstance, habits. habits. Habits breaks down to faith, family, family friends, friends, and, and work. work. And then satisfaction. Well, I, I think they're, I don't think that these are separate categories. I think these are just other contributing factors. Sure. Is, like money can't buy you, money can buy you, money can't buy you ha satisfaction, but it, it is a necessary component for happiness. Okay. But satisfaction would be happiness what levels you... levels are correlated with income up to about $70,000. Yeah, so and I mean, then after that, it doesn't... a relationship. Yes, and then after that, it doesn't increase. Sure. Yeah. And below that, it is a it, drag. Yeah, yeah, pretty tough. So I, it makes me think about... I just watched the Man on the Moon documentary about Jim Carrey when he was playing... What's his name? Kaufman. Andy Kaufman. Kaufman. And he, he character... He, it was... He method acted it. So he was Andy Kaufman for probably a year and a half. And took it way further than anybody probably thought he would. He act, like Kaufman was a, almost a prankster. And so he did things Jim Carrey never would have done. And he, he had people refer to him as Kaufman. He was Andy Kaufman. He even went and talked to the family. And after that, he had to return to his normal life and return to who he was previously. And he, it was weird because he had to go back and adopt all of these problems that he had previously, all of these worries that Jim Carrey had that Andy Kaufman didn't have. And as Andy, he got to do stuff that people would normally get really angry about, like drive a car around the movie lot and crash it into buildings and play pranks on people and throw stuff and be ridiculous. And he's like, why, why do I have to readopt all of the problems of Jim Carrey? Right. And so it makes me think of this because at one point, Jim Carrey was at the top of the heap. He had made $10 million, which was a check he had written himself three years prior. He said like, I'm going to make 3 million, like $10 million at this amount of time. He did, it. he did it. He had the highest grossing films of all time. He won crazy awards. Even for Man on the Moon, he won crazy awards. And he's like, I have accomplished everything, everything anyone would ever want to. And I'm not happy. Like, it's not there. And so now, like at the end, he's like, I'm just satisfied with disappearing. He has not found necessarily a framework. He, his framework is that he has removed himself from all frameworks. He's like, the framework of society I found to be illegitimate once I played Andy Kaufman, right? I did anything I wanted and it was fine. And so I've thrown off that framework, not working to please people, not working for money. Um, 
And I wonder how long that can work before despair. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not, not very long. Like, yeah. I mean, he's, he's just fine. He's fine being himself and not worry. Like, I, I think that his satisfaction has probably leveled off. I don't know how long happiness can remain when your framework is one of no frameworks. Yeah. Right. I agree. So I don't know. It just, it makes me think about something like that where he's accomplished everything somebody has ever wanted to, and he wasn't happy. Well, why is the Mm -hmm. question? What was missing in his equation? Right. I am very fascinated with, um, not hobos, but like people who do that, who just sort of like decide to go off and live in the woods. So the Walden pond, the, um, we had a lot of those people stop by my coffee shop when I worked in Washington. Yeah, there I watched a documentary of um, when communist when the communist revolution happened in Russia and they were killing all the Orthodox. This Orthodox family said, "All right, we're going to Siberia," and they went up and they lived in Siberia. And the youngest daughter, everybody died, and the youngest daughter was left, and she was then in her like late 80s, and they found her in the 70s or 70s, I think. Okay. And then brought her, and so she needed to go to the hospital, and they brought her back into society. And then these people were like, she had no idea what had happened in the world. She'd been living in Siberia from like 1917 to 1970 something Crazy. by herself, mm-hmm. and like doing all the orthodox rites, her praying, doing everything. And it's just those kinds of stories I find absolutely fascinating um, because of you know precisely these sorts of questions about. Um, especially with those habits, faith, family, friends, and work. Like, how is that mixture found in there? Is it found in there? Um, the work is just for you. If the, Yeah. Right? And if, family and friends aren't part of the exchange. If you're by yourself, they're not part of the exchange. But for characters of, for people of uh, who are like religious anchorites, the relationship is then with God. And cultivating that relationship, I don't. I just always find that uh, to be incredibly fascinating. I don't know if I could be an anchorite or be somebody that that goes off and by themselves, um, but I I just find those stories to be fascinating, uh, especially thinking about it in terms of this framework. Because they contradict the framework. Yeah. Is that sure? Yeah. That's, Interesting. And part of it is, I is there some personality difference between the type? Again, you're you talking about the equation focused on decreasing what you want. I want, is that a ter- certain type of person who yeah. will find happiness that way? Yeah, you maybe. could just as well imagine someone tortured by the idea of having to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. And even family and friends, I feel like most people who go live in the woods either can't do it for very long or, or find relationship with God or, sure. you know, there are, there is a relationship there somewhere. I'm sure there's people who are running from and there's people who are running to. And yes. my guess is the running to are the ones that, that Stick for it whom out. that is a, a life-giving thing. And the running from are people for whom, like, they're ultimately running from probably that framework of death and, and, right. and, and that kind of thing. So, Well, Graham, I got to tell you, you really turned my day around. Wow. Awesome. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah. You started off kind started of a little off so, It was a huge bummer and uh, not anymore. I appreciate it. Well, that's great. I'm right. glad. That what what, what did it? He, he was always going to end up back there. <laughs> I just want to be clear. His genes said that. I'm he, back at a seven, boys. Yeah, exactly right, right back at a seven. Yeah. <laughs> the episode had nothing to do with it. Let's be... <gasps> Just I have kidding. so just to whet the appetite for people uh, in the in between episodes. I want to get back to this question of changing that number because uh, I don't want to be fatalistic and think once a seven always a seven. Uh, so I want to have that. So that's the discussion. I hope we can have in the in the between episode. Sure. All right. Well, this has Let's been. Are, are we good? Yeah. yeah. This has been classical stuff you should know. 
Uh, you can reach out to us at our email address, theguys at classicalstuff.net. You can find our website, classicalstuff.net. You can reach out, out to us on the Twits. Uh, we don't have an Instagram. Uh, I, if you saw, our, I mean, like if you're watching on YouTube, you know there's a reason we don't have an Instagram. Oh. And you know, ugly, oh, ugly, ugly mugs. We ugly, yes. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I'm a seven, but I don't know what you guys are. <laughs> well, yeah. And yeah, you can, if you want to donate, donate to the podcast, you can become a patron on Patreon. And there are several goodies that come your way when that happens. And yeah, I think that's it, right? That's, that's it. That's all the stuff. So uh, cool. Thanks for listening. Hope you have a happy day. Ciao. Bye. Ciao.